couple of months ago, uh, Tara and I had the opportunity to do some hiking in Arizona. And on the next to the last day of the trip, we kind of almost happened, I mean, we, we planned it, but it wasn't the highlight of our trip, to visit the Grand Canyon. I had heard people talk about the Grand Canyon, I'd heard people rave about the Grand Canyon, and I don't know if it was the part of me that sometimes likes to be subversive, or if it was the skeptical part of me, but either way, I kind of thought, yeah, I'm sure it's great, yeah, it's all right, well, we've done some great hiking, and yeah, well, we'll see it, I'm sure it's really cool. And then we went to the Grand Canyon. And we didn't even hike down into the Grand Canyon, which I'm told really increases your amazement. But we just stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and looked across. And all we could say to one another was, this is amazing. It's as though our eyes were having trouble connecting with our brains to tell our brains just how grand and glorious and huge the Grand Canyon is. It was almost beyond comprehension. And it's likely that whether or not you have visited the Grand Canyon, you have had an experience at some point in your life like that. Maybe it was visiting the Grand Canyon, maybe it was visiting Glacier National Park for the first time, and you were blown away by the mountains and the grandeur of it all. Maybe it was the first time you saw the ocean, or maybe it was the first time you saw one of the Great Lakes of Michigan, and you were amazed Maybe it was witnessing an amazing sunset on a perfect evening. I don't know what it was, but chances are you have had an experience in your life where you were stopped because you came face to face with something that was truly amazing. Psalm 24 functions like that. The purpose of Psalm 24 is to to lead us to the edge of the Grand Canyon of God's greatness and glory and majesty, that we might catch a glimpse of who Yahweh is. And so, if you haven't already, grab your Bible and open with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. This is a psalm that is written by David, and it is a psalm that is meant to be sung. So we're going to stand and sing this. To, um, we're not going to do that. But it was sung when God's people would gather together and worship. It was something that the people of God would sing. It was a part of their liturgy. And as I said, this psalm is meant to point us to the amazing power and the glorious provision of God. This is a psalm that should cause our hearts to soar as we reflect on the Creator God. It's a song of praise. To the God of our salvation. It's a call to remember and it is a call to worship. So if you're looking at Psalm 24, before I read through the text, I just want to make some introductory remarks. First, when you see the word Lord in small caps, so all caps, small caps, Lord in your Bible, it means that the translators are translating the word Yahweh, or the name Yahweh. Now, Yahweh was the, the name by which God was known to the Israelites. It was the name that he gave to the Israelites. It was the name that he self-identified himself as. So as I'm reading this morning, I'm going to actually use that name instead of Lord, small caps, or large caps, small caps. Can't decide. 
just caps. How about that? Secondly, when you're reading through Psalm 24, you will see the word Selah. In fact, it's twice, after verse 6 and after verse 10. The translators are not exactly sure what Selah means, but most are convinced that Selah was an instruction to the reader or to the musicians telling them to stop or to pause or to reflect for a moment. So as I do that, as I read, we will do just that. We will pause and reflect for a moment. Right? So follow along as I read Psalm 24 out loud. This is the word of the Lord. A psalm of David. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from, the, from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Well, right from the start, we can see that this is a psalm of David, the king of Israel. But it is clear that although this psalm is by King David, it's not actually finally about King David. It's actually about another king. We can see that in verse 8 and 10. This psalm is about the glory of a different, more perfect, all-powerful king. Now before we get into the nuts and bolts of the text, it's worth saying right here from the start that especially since most of us in this room are Americans, we don't typically understand allegiance to a king very well. In fact, if you're thinking that through, you might even see the irony of this text on a day like today, a day like today when we celebrate our independence from a king, the king of England. And while that's fine and well, this means that as we're reading scripture, we need to be doubly careful so that we don't somehow think that our independence from an earthly king means that we are completely independent from any king. 
This text, right from the start, makes it clear that everyone and everything owes allegiance to the king. So whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, the Bible tells us the story of dependence on the king who made us, the creator God. And so this psalm is meant to lift our attention from the temporary desires and the temporary concerns that we have so that we might see eternal realities, that we might see the king of glory who deserves all of our attention. And so as we make our way through the text this morning, there'll be four points. So if you're taking notes, there's going to be four main points. And, listen carefully, with each point, there will be a corresponding gospel word and a corresponding biblical theology word. Now, I know that that can be a bit confusing, so let me explain that in a different way. As we move through the sermon, there will be four points. In For each point, there will be a gospel word. So here at CCF, one of the ways we try to understand and share the gospel is by utilizing four words that don't come from us. They come from a pastor named Greg Gilbert in a great book called What is the Gospel? But he just says, hey, the gospel can kind of be summed up into four words, God, man, Christ, and response. And so for each of the four points this morning, you'll see, hopefully, how it connects to one of these four words of the gospel. Also, for each one of our four points this morning, there will be a biblical theology word. Biblical theology is just a fancy term that means really the story that God is is writing or is telling from cover to cover, from creation to consummation or glorification. So you'll see that there's there's a word that fits with each one. If that doesn't completely make sense, that's all right. Hopefully it'll make more sense as we move our way through. The point is, I hope that you'll see that in Psalm 24, what Psalm 24 actually is, it's almost, like, it's almost like a mini capsule of the gospel. It's almost like a mini version of the grand narrative of Scripture. And I hope to make that clear by the time we're done. So let's begin with our first point. Number one, the power of the king. The power of the king. Look at verse one, a psalm of David, the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, or if you're looking and reading off of an ESV, there's a note that, there that says, and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell therein. So we've just come from Psalm 23, and we're moving now from the imagery of the Lord as our shepherd in Psalm 23 to now the Lord as our king in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord and everything in it, all that fills it. Another way of saying this is everything belongs to Yahweh. Everything belongs to him. He has the copyright over everything from the trees and the mountains and the Grand Canyon to your home, your phone, your pet, you. All of it bears the mark The copyright of King Jesus. Why? Why is that so? Why does God own it all? Why does it all belong to him? Verse 2 tells us. Because he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. 
So the power and the ownership of all things by the king is because he is the founder. He's the originator. He's the author. Like, I don't know, when was the last time you thought about God like that? That he is the founder of all things. In fact, the seas here in verse 2 is likely a reference to Yahweh bringing order out of chaos. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 1 where we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then what did God do next? And God said. God spoke. God brought order from chaos. And this psalm, like the gospel itself, begins with God and his glory. In fact, that's our first gospel word here. It's God. God created all things for his glory. All things exist. By his sustaining power, he holds all things together, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Which means our biblical theology word is creation. Creation. And this is the foundation that we build upon. We, our worldview is built upon this foundation that God exists and that he is the creator of all things. We do not believe that the world was formed by random selection or a long process of countless mutations. No, we believe that the world was designed and created by an all-wise, all-powerful, good God. And that makes a difference because as a result of this all-powerful, all-wise, all-good God creating our world, we believe there is purpose in the world. We believe that our lives are not accidents, that we have been created by God. Therefore, all people have worth, value, and dignity. We believe that the events of our world, from the micro level to the macro level, are under the sovereign control of the high king, Yahweh. And this answers the question, then, why do we owe allegiance to God? Like even as we get further into this text and we see our separation from God, it's this truth that we are created by God which tells us why we should care about a relationship with him. Because he made us, because he crafted us with intentionality and purpose. And so truly, Yahweh is a powerful king. But he's also a pure king, which is our second point this morning, the purity of of the king, the purity of the king. Look at verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Or if you're reading a CSB translation, it says, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Well, this hill or mountain of the Lord that we see here is an important theme that runs from cover to cover in the Bible. 
God had specific interactions with humanity on mountains. Mountains are places where the presence of God symbolically dwells and where God meets with his people. For example, according to Ezekiel chapter 28, the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. According to Ezekiel chapter 40, the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth are characterized as a mountain. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, the temple in Jerusalem was built on a mountain. A mountain is where Abraham offered Isaac. A mountain is where David sacrificed to the Lord. A mountain is where God met with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments and the law. You see, hills and mountains in the Bible are significant because they symbolize the place from which God reigns. Where his presence dwells. And so the question then inherent in verse 3 is, who? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? One pastor I listened to this week said this passage is a lot like the question from Cinderella. Who can go to the ball? Who can see the king? Verse 4 gives us the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So what is required to be in the presence of the king? Answer, perfection. Holiness. The one who can have an audience with Yahweh is the one whose hands are completely clean and whose heart is completely pure. In fact, this echoes back to Psalm chapter 15. In fact, if you want to flip back to the left a few chapters, you can. And follow along as I read Psalm 15, which sounds very familiar. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? You see that? Holy hill again. Answer, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change who does not put out money at interest, who does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. You want an audience with the creator, God? You want to live in the presence of the high king? You want that kind of access? Great. All that's needed is a track record of perfection and total purity. That's it. So everybody who qualifies, just stand up, line up across the front. (laughs) And no one does. Because no one can. Ironically enough, no one did in first service either. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Answer, no one. 
Not one of us can stand in the presence of God. You can't and I can't. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all failed to honor God as he rightly deserves. To borrow the words from Paul in Romans, we have all exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the glory of other things. Sometimes those other things are even ourselves. The gospel word here then to continue with our gospel grid would be man or mankind. God created all things, second word, man. Mankind chose to rebel, chose to not honor God as God. Honor other things above God. So our biblical theology word would be the fall. Now, I I say this from time to time, and I'm going to repeat it again because I think it's important that we grasp this to the core of who we are. Because if we stop right here, God would be fair and we would be destroyed. It's important to repeat that because we, I think we have within us, within our own flesh and within our own society, within our world around us, this message, this gravitational pull that continues to tell us that if anyone suffers or if anyone experiences the consequences of sin, it's not fair. And I would just submit to us again that we recalibrate our understanding of what's fair and not, what's just and not, based on what the Bible says, not on what we feel. And the Bible is quite clear that if the story ended here, God would be fair, he would be just and righteous, and we would be destroyed. God created all things for his glory and for his pleasure. We rebelled, we sinned, we failed to honor God as God, as he rightly deserves. End of story. That would be fair. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still rebellious sinners, Christ died for us. And God in grace and love and for his ultimate glory did not end the story here. Which leads us to our third point. Which is the provision of the king. Alone and helpless and without God and without hope in the world. It took the provision of the king to save. Now remember, David who is writing Psalm 24 is writing as he is, according to 2 Peter 1, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So The Holy Spirit is inspiring David as he writes. And King David, you remember, is God's anointed king of Israel. But David is just a foreshadowing of the Lord's anointed king to come. So David serves as a type of the greater king who is to come. Gratefully, we who read through the Old Testament today, like Psalm 24, have the benefit of the New Testament. We know that God the Father provided God the Son, Jesus Christ. We know that according to 1 Peter 2, verse 23, Jesus lived without sin. Jesus lived with completely clean hands and a pure heart. We know that he willingly offered his life on the cross for the salvation of all who believe, all who turn 
from unbelief and trust in him. And we know that all who trust in him are united to Jesus Christ. So that Jesus Christ's perfection becomes our official record in the eyes of God the Father. We know that his perfect obedience becomes our official obedience. So that, according to verse 5, Christ's blessings become our blessings. And his righteousness is credited to our account. So when we read through Psalm 24 and we say, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? We get to verse 4 and we realize, oh, that's not me. We know that God did provide one who did live with clean hands and a pure heart, who did not lift up his soul to what is false and did not swear deceitfully, who did receive the blessing of Yahweh, the blessing that is now ours in him because we are now counted righteous. We now have received his final grade as our own. It's it's like failing algebra. Not that I would know anything about that. It's like failing algebra, hypothetically. It's like failing algebra. And you get your report card, and lo and behold, to your surprise, you have an A. You have 100%. It's your final grade. And you go to the, to the instructor, and you say, okay, wait a minute. I don't understand this. You know that I failed. Like You knew that I didn't get a single question right. How is it that I have 100%? The teacher looks at you and says, I know you did not get any of the questions right. But my son also took the exam and got a perfect score. And I am choosing to count his score for your final grade. So that his righteousness is credited to your account. You are not perfect. But I'm choosing to not count that. I'm choosing to count the perfection of my son. And that's exactly what God through Christ does on our behalf here in verses 4, 5, and 6. That we are counted as those who have clean hands and a pure heart, although we do not. Because we have sought the Lord Because by faith we have been united to Jesus Christ. His righteousness is ours. His benefits are ours. And that is our provision. Remember, David is writing long before Jesus. Because of the progressive revelation of the Bible, because we interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, we know that according to John 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Jesus goes on to say, if you have known me, you have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and you have seen him. Because you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So it's no surprise here that our gospel word is Christ. Christ. God created all things. Man sinned and rebelled against God and rightly deserved punishment. And yet God provided Christ as a substitute on our behalf. For all who believe. It's also no surprise that our biblical theology word here is redemption. So we've gone from creation to fall, and now we have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
who cleanses us from sin. And this brings us now to our final point this morning. We've seen the power of the king and the purity of the king and the provision of the king. We now come to the praise of the king. Look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh. Strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. So if you have been listening closely this morning, you may be asking this question right about now. Wait a minute. Here in Psalm 24, Yahweh is king. But doesn't Scripture also teach us that Jesus is the king? Like even when he died above his cross, right? Jesus, king of the Jews. And the answer is yes. For example, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, David writes and says that God has set his king on Zion, his holy mountain. But if you remember when we went through Psalm chapter 2, we saw that David's not even really talking just about himself as the holy king who's set on Mount Zion, God's holy hill. He's referring to the one to come, the Messiah to come, the high king who would come, and that David is only a type of. He's talking about Jesus. And Yahweh has set Jesus, his king, on his holy hill. Or, for example, in Psalm 22 that we looked at two weeks ago, we saw in verses 27 and 28 that kingship belongs to the Messiah, King Jesus. And Psalm 24 shows us the righteous king who is the Lord of glory, ascending to the temple of his Father. This is a call to praise the Lord of glory, which is where we get Lord of glory in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, we have Lord of glory, which comes directly from these words here, the King of glory. And the Lord of glory is referring to Jesus. So is the King of glory the Father or is the King of glory the Son? And the answer, once again, is... Yes. We can say with confidence that Psalm 24 is a call to praise the King of glory. And the King of glory is both God the Father and God the Son. It's both Yahweh that tells his people, I am Yahweh, serve me and walk before me blamelessly, and the Son Jesus Christ who said that he has come as the Spirit of Yahweh. As the fulfillment of Yahweh among his people in the flesh. This is a call to praise. This is a summons to see and savior the Lord. Who according to verse 1 is supreme over all things. And according to verse 2 is the creator of all things. And who according to verse 3 through 6 has provided salvation for all who believe. And according to verse 7 through 10 is mighty and will accomplish our ultimate victory and rescue. 
This is a call for us to come to the edge of the Grand Canyon of the glory of God, which is most clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ, and be amazed. And so David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, personifies these gates and doors in verse 7 and verse 9. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. For David and his audience, this likely referred to the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was the special piece of furniture that God commissioned to be built. It symbolized the presence of God among his people. And David calls for the gates to be flung open wide so that the presence of God would return to his people. We see the same picture in Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, returning to the city of Jerusalem, the city of David as the king. In fact, you remember that the people would cut down the palm branches and laid them down and they shouted out, Hosanna, which is treasonous because they are declaring that the king has arrived. And they were exactly right. It was not Caesar, it was Jesus. In fact, Matthew, the gospel writer, connects Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem with the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, to show us once again that Jesus is the King, the Messiah. He is the King of glory. So the application for us today is clear. The people of God are to receive Jesus Christ. We are to throw open the figurative gates and doors and welcome him in. We are to be amazed. We aren't merely to acknowledge Jesus as Savior. We are to welcome him and embrace him as our king. And out of that, it means we set aside the things that dull our affections for King Jesus. It means that we pursue that which kindles our love for and enjoyment of King Jesus. It means we fight sin because King Jesus is on the throne. It means we go across the street and love our neighbors because there is a King who is good, who has provided for us in Christ and for whom we exist to praise Him endlessly. It means we go to France and all around the world as ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the praise of His glory so that people from every tribe and nation and tongue and generation will live to declare His praise. They will catch a glimpse of the glory of something inestimably bigger than the Grand Canyon. See, it's one thing to acknowledge Jesus intellectually. It's another thing to welcome him and joyfully honor him as king. And that's the call here. Which is no surprise that our gospel word is finally response. God, man, Christ, response. Have you flung open the gates and the doors that the King of glory may enter? Have you repented of your sin to trust in Jesus Christ as the only provision for your sin? 
Have you welcomed him with this same exuberant joy that we see the psalmist here in verses 7 through 10? Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts. The King of glory. David is preparing the people of God for a greater day that is to come. A day when Jesus will return and will reign with complete power, with all things in submission to himself. Which means this is a biblical theology picture of glorification. When all things are made new. When all things are put back to rights as they should. When the dwelling place of God is with man and our joy will be complete and God will do it and can do it which really circles us back really to the beginning of Psalm 24 because the earth is the Lord's he made it and in love he is bringing a people back to himself through the righteousness and sacrifice of his son Through King Jesus we have salvation. And we, friends, are sealed for a day to come. A day that Isaiah tells us about and talks about it, saying that Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord, will cover the earth. So the dwelling place of God, the mountain, will cover the earth, meaning we will forever be with the Lord. And this psalm. Psalm 24 not only just reminds us, oh, by the way, of these truths, it cries out to us with the power and the purity and the provision and the praise of the high king. So I pray that in your own heart, God would continue to work and cultivate love and cultivate joy and cultivate adoration and worship so that even the wonder of the Grand Canyon would pale in comparison to this greatest of all glories. Amen. Would you stand with me?